Hello and welcome back to all the longtime listeners of the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. For those who are new to our series, the Global and the Granite State has been diving into global issues of importance for over two years now, and we continue to provide you with insightful global discussions on a monthly basis. It is an easy and engaging way to go behind the headlines and really learn about the issues and challenges of the day. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the Council, as well as your host for this podcast. Today, we are looking at a singular issue which can provide further insights into the wider world. Many people choose to look at the differences between cultures, communities, and people, but we here at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire prefer to highlight our similarities. When I was running our international visitor exchange programs, I found it so interesting that we were all grappling with similar issues. It was simply where each country was on the continuum that made people feel that they were alone in trying to fix whatever issue was top of mind. Please consider this as you listen to this episode, as the ideas behind where Bolsonaro gets his support can be applied to many other authoritarians around the world, and understanding them can help you understand how to prevent democratic backsliding. Without further ado, let's jump right into the world of Jair Bolsonaro and Brazil. Jair Bolsonaro, the bombastic president of Brazil, is a controversial figure on the world stage. From international outrage over massive fires throughout the Amazon, to anti-indigenous statements and overseeing one of the worst COVID-19 responses in the world, second, in total deaths only to the United States, Bolsonaro certainly has some very staunch critics. Despite falling approval ratings, mainly over the handling of the COVID-19 crisis, he still maintains loyal support, in the same way that many autocrats do. Taking a look and understanding this firebrand populist can help listeners understand how people like this gain support, use divisions to fracture society, and use it for their own personal advantage. I reached out to Harvard University Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures and African and African American Studies, Dr. Bruno Cajavalu. Dr. Cajavalu is originally from Rio de Janeiro and back in 2018 wrote a very interesting article about who the supporters of Yair Bolsonaro are and how they have come to support him and his combative style of public engagement. It struck me as quite insightful and valuable in terms of understanding supporters of populists and how they are able to get people to look the other way. With all of the democratic backsliding going on around the world, it is important to understand these individual movements and the similarities seen in different countries. So, who exactly is Yair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro was a, was, was a backbencher in the Congress. He wasn't a person of particular power. He was in a way sort of laughed off even by folks in the political right that would then become his allies once his candidacy really took off. But really he was known as somebody who would 
say things defending the Brazilian military dictatorship from 1965 to 1988. And he would say on television, for example, that the military dictatorship should have killed even more people that they in fact did. He defended on multiple occasions the Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet. So he really wasn't someone taken very seriously by political professionals, but he was very much himself a political professional. Somewhat like Trump, Bolsonaro convinced the electorate that he was an outsider. In his case, it's even more surprising to think of his rise because he had been a professional politician for quite some time. For anyone who watched the HBO series Veep, it reminds me of Jonah Ryan when he runs for president, calling himself the outsider's insider, and was rather combative himself. Sometimes it is interesting in the ways in which reality reflect art. So where does Bolsonaro pull his support from as the right-wing strongman? Most of his support in the lower ranks of police officers and their families, folks in the military, and sort of very, very right-wing circles. So in a way like Trump, he was a folkloric character, but he was really well known for saying sort of bombastic and scandalous things. In a way, through his style, he passed as, a, as an outsider, but he had been a professional politician for quite some time. So that's more or less very quick primer on Bolsonaro. So if that was not enough for you to question his ability to lead this country, there's more to the story, and this is where it gets fairly dark. In 2018, a city councilwoman and her driver were killed while driving through the city. Many media reports have indicated that these groups were very much connected to the president and his family. Bruno compared Mariela Franco, the councilwoman, to current U.S. House member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in that she was capturing the imaginations of a new left, a left that cares more about gender and race issues than perhaps a previous generation. It seems that Councilwoman Franco was killed by a local militia with ties to Bolsonaro and his sons. In response to her efforts to shed light on the corrupt power that these armed groups have and to fight against them. Even if the president had nothing to do with the killing, it is not a good sign that he is so clearly linked to groups like this. How then does someone get elected when they have so clearly run afoul of so many different norms and rules? Remember, this is a person who, during his campaign, promoted past military dictatorships, hurled racist and homophobic slurs, and generally attacked anyone who was not 100% loyal to him. Yeah, so his coalition represented entrenched forces within traditional political systems, right? So it, it combined folks who were, uh, saw him as an agent of change with folks that basically uh, were afraid of change, right? He counted on the active or tacit support of significant segments of the military, of media, finance, and in Brazil, much more so than Wall Street being for Trump, right? So in Wall Street, there's very meaningful disagreement over uh, which way to go. In Brazil's case, our Wall Street equivalent was, was really very much behind Bolsonaro. Other financial interests, um, industry, um, agribusiness, which is quite powerful in Brazil, Congress. So even though he had been a backbencher in Congress, a lot of people who were a little bit afraid of what might happen with anti-corruption movements basically uh, joined Bolsonaro's putatively anti-corruption campaign. As you will hear a bit later, the anti-corruption effort under Bolsonaro was pretty much for show. This is best illustrated by former Justice Minister Sergio Moro, who, when after leaving the position, stated, 
I don't think it works to fight corruption when you don't respect the rule of law and when you don't respect the autonomy of the law agencies who investigate and prosecute crimes. In addition, the multi-party system in Brazil seems ripe for corruption and influence peddling to build coalitions. Often the parties with most congressional representation are hard to place in a left or right spectrum. They will sort of lean towards the right, but more important than that, they will lean towards whoever's in power, right? And whoever they can uh, work with to basically release funds either for their constituents or more often for their own pockets. So he very much had the support of the political establishment in very significant and even surprising ways. Perhaps more importantly, he had quite a bit of support of neo-Pentecostal evangelical churches. And churches in Brazil were in many ways the gateways to disseminate a lot of his campaign materials through social media, uh, WhatsApp groups, and, and so on and so forth, in, in a way that a lot of political professionals didn't quite realize at the time of the election. Now that we know where his support comes from, here is the juicy part, which I believe has some implications for understanding Trump supporters here in the U.S. A lot of people have asked the question of how can people support a racist, misogynistic, and hateful person in the way that Trump has engendered such support. Doesn't that mean that all of his supporters are racist? The same questions are asked of Bolsonaro's supporters, and I find Bruno's insights here really interesting. You know, there's no doubt that Bolsonaro and, and the world of Bolsonarism is deeply committed in all sorts of ways to misogyny, racism, homophobia, and so on. But I think the progressive and leftist circles make a mistake in assuming that the appeal of Bolsonaro is defined by these modes, right? That people embark in the promise of Bolsonaro as a candidate because they share in his homophobia, they share in his racism and so on. Certainly many people do, but I think there's another side of it which is less obvious, which is the appeal of clarity. There's always an answer for everything in the Bolsonaro worldview. And it's the easiest answer, right? It's the, it's the answer that basically places blame and responsibility on others and in that way allows you to skirt complexity, skirt responsibility. Um, and, and that's very powerful. And I think that's something that will stay with us in Brazil beyond Bolsonaro. I think that's, that's a problem for democracies throughout the world and, and the tendencies for that to become even more so the case, you know, with very complex challenges like climate change and systemic racism and, um, and so on, right? So I think, you know, he, he find a way of beckoning to a fantasy of justice and heroism where people that followed them really thought they were on the side of good. He, he offers the expiation of guilt and the transfer of responsibility. It's, it's very difficult to confront the reality of our challenges, to confront the facts that we live in deeply uh, uh, racist societies that have been shaped by the legacies of slavery, by legacies here of Jim Crow, of redlining. Brazil has all sorts of, of its equivalents. So it's not easy, right? So when you have a political candidate that's essentially telling you, you know, it, it's, it's not your fault, of course people will embark in that. Allow me a moment to break in here and toot our own horn a little bit. 
This idea that as the world continues to get more complex, these discussions on really big challenges will only become harder is a perfect example of why organizations like the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, the NAACP, and others are so important these days. If more people were to engage with programming that helps them understand complex global and societal issues, then we could have actual debates based on facts and not sound bites. We could agree to disagree based on issues and not go about othering people. For this reason, I do hope that you will share out programs like this to as many people as you may know so that we can start bringing the temperature down on all of these really difficult conversations. In some ways, you, you might think of the system as being designed for corruption. So partly because of the ways coalitions work, you have to build alliances with parties that are, are often described as rental parties, right? So they'll basically sell their support to the highest bidder. So it's difficult for the executive to really work with uh, an agenda and try to pass legislation or, or build support without, you know, doling out funds. Campaigns are very expensive. So that has been another way through which corruption has really fostered, right? So under the table donations to political campaigns, right? Bolsonaro ran an, an anti-corruption campaign. And in a lot of ways, the media let him get away with it, right? Because as, as I mentioned, he was someone with all sorts of links to extortionist groups and with, you know, deeply corrupt criminal organizations. And he has, in a lot of ways, governed with alliances with criminal organizations throughout Brazil, including land grabbers in the Amazon. But nominally, it was an anti-corruption campaign. And at the time of his rise, as, as I mentioned, there was quite a bit of disillusionment with the, the PT, the Workers' Party. There were indeed all sorts of corruption scandals tied to the Workers' Party. During those years, and this was a big part of the Bolsonaro coalition, the Lava Jato prosecutions were underway. Lava Jato means car wash. So these were operations that were nominally targeting corruption, and in some ways they were, but now in retrospect, it is increasingly clear that they were doing so in uh, very much politically directed ways, right? So they really were going after the Workers' Party in ways that were uh, disproportionate to the acts committed, right? And, and Bolsonaro, in a very savvy way, sort of mobilized his forces towards his interests, right? In addition, things were changing in Brazil, and many of the people in power felt that they were losing their privileged position. There are certainly some similarities between what is going on here in the U.S. in changing cultures, but also some differences. You know, in both the U.S. and in Brazil, the say privileged white groups over minorities in all sorts of different ways in Brazil and in the United States. And here in the U.S., with the advances of, of civil rights, and as federal government rolled back uh, racist uh, legislation and moved towards embracing full citizenship for, for African-Americans, the federal government then increasingly became painted as uh, the villain, right? There's echoes of that in a certain emergent anti-government libertarianism or sort of classical liberalism of convenience in Brazil. And in this sense, it's reacting against affirmative action policies that really have turned out to be very successful and have produced really meaningful change in Brazil, for example, in universities, right? So a generation ago, you would sit in the classroom at a Brazilian university and really faces reflected the demography of elites, right? Now, that's quite different. 
so now the, the, the faces of university students in Brazil reflect uh, much more accurately the demographic realities of, of, of the country. And Brazil is a country where the majority identify as black or brown or pardo, which is a category that captures the mixtures between blackness, whiteness, indigeneity in, in Brazilian society and other categories. Unlike in the United States, lower income neighborhoods in Brazil don't tend to be racially segregated. So there was never really something equivalent to Jim Crow. So if you go to the poorer neighborhoods in the outskirts of Sao Paulo, for example, you will find places that reflect a demographic mixture, right? And the numbers of, say, the, the, the favelas, the first census numbers from mid-20th mid century, a third of the people would identify as white, a third is mixed race, a third is black, right? So segregation works very differently in the United States. So that helps to explain, I think, why race historically hadn't been used as successfully as in the United States as cleavage in electoral politics, right? So those neighborhoods of low income, peripheral neighborhoods of sort of large cities, they'll vote more or less in similar ways. So very different from the US, right? Where voting patterns differ very significantly by racial groups. However, in Brazil, as in much of Latin America, the spaces of wealth and the spaces of privilege have remained almost exclusively white. So whereas in the United States, uh, there has been you know, some progress in that realm, Latin America is still lagging. That has changed in this century. So race is now more meaningfully a cudgel. It's more meaningfully a predictor of electoral behavior, much less than the United States still. One of the sort of more conventional explanations on the left for Bolsonaro's rise had to do with these elites that live and circulate in nearly white exclusive environments or in environments that are very much uh, asymmetric in terms of race and class, right? So where you know, the, the, the powerful tend to be white, that Bolsonaro basically surfed a backlash against affirmative action policies, right? So that folks who were resentful over you know, having their kids go to school with black and brown Brazilians or riding an airplane with black and brown Brazilians became uh, captivated by Bolsonaro's message. There's truth to that. But I think that doesn't capture uh, a significant portion of the electorate that really responded to an appeal of Bolsonaro's rhetoric that was essentially about how if you're a minority and you worked hard and you overcame challenges, that's on you. You don't owe that to the federal government and so on, right? So I think here there's a certain rather new form of, of politics, which is very familiar in the US, which has surfaced in Brazil and which had appeal that really cut across various uh, racial groups. Turning our attention to the future, it is clear that the COVID-19 pandemic has hit Brazil very hard. It is interesting to me that leaders who want to retain power and need the support of the people have turned to ignoring the pandemic, claiming it is not an issue, that the media or others are making it all up, when it has been very clear that it is killing hundreds of thousands of people around the world. You would think that the way to go would have been to rally your supporters to combat the virus and put it behind you, in order to avoid the drop in approval ratings that Bolsonaro has seen, along with others. Case in point, 
The Brazilian Senate has recently opened an inquiry into Bolsonaro's administration's handling of the crisis, and yet he is still out there promoting junk science that has been disproven on many levels. This crisis certainly will not just go away, as he may have hoped. The federal government and Bolsonaro have invested in the, a strategy that has worked fairly well to them up till now, which is a strategy of, of deflection and blaming others. In this case, currently trying to blame governors for, for taking measures to address the pandemic. You know, they really placed a bet in herd immunity and sort of chalked up hundreds and thousands of deaths as the price to pay to, to defeat the pandemic. They're paying a political price for it. His support has eroded. At the same time, as I suggested earlier, his mode of governance is to be in perpetual campaign mode, right? So you really place a bet that we live in a world where appearances govern how people approach politics more than results or anything material and empirical really do, right? So I'm on a lot of WhatsApp groups of very, very enthusiastic Bolsonaro fans. And in these circles and in these, you know, sort of fantasies, people are really still convinced that chloroquine and that all sorts of medications that we know cannot cure or prevent uh, COVID, right? That these are actually the ways to go and that the government is quite correct in placing a bet on, on, on these medicines. And, and, and as a side note, you know, we're now having, for example, kidney failure problems connected to this practice. Now, there's a limit to this fantasy when people's loved ones begin to become hospitalized and begin to die, right? So you certainly have Bolsonaristas, and, you know, I'm in groups with these types of Bolsonaristas that are still convinced that this is all a major conspiracy, that a lot of the things that we know are happening are, in fact, not happening. So he's certainly trying to adapt his strategy of blaming others and finding new enemies. And they might be China for having created this. It might be the governors for wrecking the economy with their lockdown measures. But we'll see. We'll see how well these work in a world which isn't limited to WhatsApp groups and isn't limited to the screen, right? It does seem that there are a lot of questions that need to be answered by the Bolsonaro administration. But I do wonder how many of his supporters want to ask those questions. As in the U.S., it seems that people on both sides of the aisle are so entrenched in their ways that movement towards the center is some sort of betrayal. For Bolsonaristos, what are they hanging on to as positives for the current government and why they continue to put their support behind it? Yeah, th there's always a fantasy to make sense of what's happening in a way that makes them the, the heroes and the ones who are on the right side of history, right? So in the case of the Amazon, for example, it might be, you know, fake news or, or manufactured stories about how the fires are actually not happening and the fires that are happening are the result of NGOs that are sort of going to the forest and setting it on fire so they can get money from Leonardo DiCaprio or something like that, right? With COVID, there are some that are still very much in denial mode that are saying that people are actually not dying of COVID, but that, you know, uh, public health officials uh, are under pressure to pretend like those deaths can be attributed to COVID because they might get more funds from the government, for example, right? 
others are deflecting by claiming that the real killer here is the economic collapse. Brazil is facing historically high levels of unemployment. So they're blaming measures taken to slow down the pandemic um, instead of focusing on the pandemic itself. Right? So th th there's always a way, right? There's always a way to sort of evade reality and bend it so that it's flattering and so that Bolsonaro comes out on top. I think as these become more and more fantastical, the tendency is for his coalition and his base to erode. So where does Brazil go from here? It will be interesting to see how the recent Supreme Court decision to annul former President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva's conviction on corruption charges from the aforementioned car wash corruption investigation affects the upcoming presidential race. His convictions were dismissed as the Supreme Court decided that the initial court to hear the case did not have jurisdiction. None of the alleged crimes happened in that state, so the trial must be held again in Brasilia. He has not been cleared of any wrongdoing, but based on how long a new case may take... Lula is eligible to run. He, he is right now the only other politician in the country who's capable of mobilizing passions in a way comparable to, to Bolsonaro. There are a lot of Lula-Bolsonaro supporters, so a lot of people who were disillusioned with the Workers' Party, who uh, became Bolsonaro supporters, and it's very easy to imagine a lot of those people that are now disappointed with the lack of material results in Bolsonaro returning to Lula. The big open question, I think, now doesn't regard the left. I mean, it seems as if the, the left or the center-left has its candidate back, if indeed Lula is running. The big question is what the center and the right, the anti-Lula center and the anti-Bolsonaro right, in other words, the conservatives and centrist liberals who are committed to democracy, the question is what they do. Because if they manage to find a remotely viable candidate who can pull votes away from Bolsonaro, we could conceivably have a second round in the next Brazilian election that leaves Bolsonaro out, right? And that would be very good news for the country and for democracy, right? And here we should explain that Brazil, um, unlike the US, has a two-round system where you don't become elected unless you have a majority of valid votes. Of course, it will be interesting to see how the 2022 election shakes out over the next year plus. Not only does it have huge implications for the future of Brazil, but it can be taken as a sign of a rejection of authoritarianism and perhaps starts creating a trend for democracy to start flourishing again around the world. Hopefully, if Bolsonaro does not win, he will not attempt to send the military into the streets as he has recently hinted at. Although, with several top generals resigning over the firing of the defense minister, it is unclear what level of support Bolsonaro continues to hold with higher-level military personnel. Only time will tell. Thank you to Dr. Cavahu for taking the time to speak with me and provide his insights into his home country. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to listen to this episode. We really appreciate your interest in vital global issues, and how they can help you make sense of the world around. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to rate us and to leave us a comment. We would love to get suggestions from you on the topics and issues you most would like to hear about. It will help us to spread the world about global issues. You can find out more about the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and our other public programs by visiting www.wacnh.org. We hope you will consider attending our events and joining as a member. Your support means the world to us. As always, thank you for all you do to make our global community more engaged and understanding. This episode was recorded, edited, produced, and created by Tim Horgan. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music was Sickly Brazil by Creamy Electric Santa. Let's catch up next month. Mm-hmm.